All right, welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you in the uh, wee hours of Thursday, April 8th, 2021. And actually, uh, this is not really going to be a rant tonight. It's going to be more of a meander. <laughs> and even uncharacteristically, something of a celebration. A celebration, first and foremost, of spring. Because finally, it feels like spring has arrived here in New York City. And um, it's especially meaningful this year because we sort of missed spring last year. You know, a year ago, in uh, you know late March into you know throughout all of April, 2020, we were all in deep isolation because of the pandemic. So you know during the glorious days of spring, I hardly left my apartment. I mean, I literally hardly left my apartment. I would like sneak out just to get a breath of fresh air. Uh, you know, like maybe once a week in the dead of night at like 4.30 in the morning. Apart from that, I literally did not leave my apartment. I lived on, you know, dry goods. I lived on pasta and beans and rice and lentils uh, until finally came the uh, George Floyd killing on May 25th and the uh, Black Lives Matter uprising began and I... Uh, emerged from isolation in no uncertain terms and began to interact with the with the world and humanity again, albeit carefully masked and distanced, as they say. But still, um, that, uh, you know, first half of the spring, at least, or more than first half of the spring, from the, uh, you know, spring equinox on through the final days of May, I feel like I missed it. The winter went into extra innings is what it felt like, you know, because I tend to be very much a homebody and just kind of hibernate during the winter and stay home and, uh, you know, read and work on my, uh, my computer and live off dry goods. And I continued that, um, that lifestyle on into, uh, well into the spring. So I kind of feel like I missed the spring last year and the winter was kind of like artificially extended by the uh, by the pandemic and the enforced isolation. Now, New York City is still, you know, um kind of depressed. A lot of uh, my favorite businesses, particularly my favorite, uh, you know, eateries down in Chinatown have closed over the course of the past year and it looks like they're not going to reopen a lot of my favorite groceries. It's very sad. But nonetheless, the city certainly um has come back to life compared to where it was a year ago, despite, you know, the collateral damage of some, you know, not really nice family-owned businesses that I've been patronizing for years having closed, which is very sad. But nonetheless, it finally really feels like spring. And the weather these past kind of days has just been really, really beautiful. And the flowers start to bloom and all that jazz. And um, there's also something else to celebrate on April 1st. Cannabis became legal in New York State. The MRTA was signed into law by Governor Andrew Cuomo. That's the MRTA, the Marijuana Regulation and Taxation Act. And I can hardly believe it. And it's actually the most progressive and permissive cannabis legalization law in 
the country. It really is. You know, it took long enough to, to finally get it passed. Uh, you know, uh, the advocates have been fighting for this in New York State ever since 2013. It's been introduced every year since 2013, and uh, it's it, ha- it hasn't made it. And Cuomo, has, I'm not going to get into it too much, but Cuomo has paid a very, uh, played a very obstructionist and duplicitous game of trying to, you know, gum up this legislation. But finally, probably because he's under fire politically and you know, he really needs the political capital, he blinked. And he actually signed into law the most progressive and permissive cannabis legalization law in the United States. I am so proud of New York State. I can't tell you. And a big, big, big shout out to um, Vocal New York. That's Voices of Community Activists and Leaders, Vocal New York. And Empire State Normal, that's National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, Normal. And the New York State Chapter of the Drug Policy Alliance, etc., who have been fighting and fighting for years to, uh, to get this legislation passed. And now it's passed. A real victory. And I just had to uh, put it to the test. One of the things that, that, um, that the MRTA does, which, as far as I know, no other cannabis legalization law in the country does, New York is now, I believe, the 15th state to have legalized cannabis, and the only one of those 15 where you can smoke in public. Anywhere where it is legal to smoke a cigarette, it's legal to smoke cannabis in all of New York State. From Staten Island to the very northern tip of the Adirondacks, from Montauk Point to the Niagara River, anywhere you can smoke a cigarette, you can smoke a joint. Only state in the country where, where that's the case, I believe. <clears throat> and of course, I had to put it to the test. And what an interesting feeling it was to actually went down to uh, Monroe Street, where um, where I maintain a mail drop in Chinatown. I have to go down there every uh, every couple of days. I do my shopping, get my beard trimmed, and pick up my mail. And there's a very nice spot where um, there's some benches just where Monroe Street goes under the uh, the Manhattan Bridge. And it's right next to a ball field and a um, and a place where uh, you know kids uh, use their skateboards. It's so it's it's next to a park, but it's not actually in a park. You're not allowed to smoke in a park. You can't smoke cigarettes in a park. It's a ticketable offense. And similarly, now to smoke marijuana in a park is a ticketable offense. But uh, on the sidewalk next to the park, there, but outside the park, there are benches. Sat down on the bench lit up a, a skinny little joint, just to make the point, you know, <laughs> didn't really get all that high, but just a skinny little joint, uh, just just to do it, to smoke out in the open without exercising any degree of stealth and without having to, you know, keep an eye open for the cops. And actually, you know, for the five minutes I was sitting there, whatever, no cops passed by. But it was a very strange, almost surreal kind of feeling to be smoking cannabis out there in front of God and everybody right on the public streets of New York City and not have to worry about it. So uh, all I can say is yippee, yippee. I mean, yeah, the, the uh, you know, general trajectory of the uh, <clears throat> the human system on this planet continues to be, you know, downward toward ecological collapse and totalitarianism. But, you know, there's been uh, a few glimmers of hope in the past months, including, of course, you know, most significantly 
the fact that uh, El Pendejo is no longer in the White House and that Trump fascism was defeated, at least for the moment, Trump fascism was defeated. And it looks like it was really defeated. There isn't that much sign of, uh, you know, them trying to rally for a comeback. Okay, it's only been a few months, but still. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, you know, it's just the proverbial best of times, worst of times. It's, it's a, you know, a function of the fact that the country has become so politically polarized that we were actually able to pass the MRTA and that there actually has been this whole reckoning with racial justice and Black Lives Matter and all that. And I'll also point out that uh, MRTA has very, very strong provisions for uh, what they call um, equity, cannabis equity or restorative justice and making sure that the uh, communities that have been most impacted by cannabis prohibition and the war on drugs are going to be the communities which are going to get the investment from the tax revenues which are going to be raised from legal cannabis, and also the communities which are going to have a, um, uh, you know, first access. They're going to be first in line to get the uh, the licenses for, uh, you know, running the, the businesses to, uh, you know, production, retail, processing, etc. of a new legal product. So uh, this is something to be proud of. This is something to be proud of. This is something to celebrate, you know. I mean, certainly we're going to be pay very, very close attention to how it unfolds and make sure that, you know, the um, that the, the process actually lives up to the to the rhetoric. Absolutely. We're going to have to pay very, very, very close attention. Eternal, eternal vigilance of the cost of freedom, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but nonetheless, I'm uh, very enthused, very enthused, I have to say. So, you know, it's that time of year. My longtime listeners will know that, you know, back for 20 years, I produced a, um, a program on WBAI, Pacifica Radio, here in New York City before, um, again, almost exactly 10 years ago, the Ides of March 2011, I was purged from the airwaves of WBAI for... Uh, my political dissent, and for exercising free speech on so-called free speech radio. If you want to read about it, you can just Google my name, Bill Weinberg, W-E-I-N-B-E-R-G, with W-B-A-I, and um, the account that was uh, written up about me being purged from W-B-A-I for my political dissent. Let me Google it while I'm talking. Which appeared in the New York Times on May 26, 2011. Yeah, Ides of March 2011, I was purged from WBAI. Ides of March 2011, exactly 10 years ago. But uh, So on May 26, 2011, the New York Times wrote story, Bill Weinberg looks to future without WBAI. At an on-here haven for dissent, a dissenting voice is silenced by Colin Moynihan. You can read all about it. And interestingly, that same day, the Ides of March, March 15th, 2011, the, uh, the Syrian revolution began. And certainly, uh, you know, um, paying very close attention to uh, the revolutionary movement and the counter-revolutionary repression finally escalating to genocide has uh, certainly absorbed, uh, in Syria, has absorbed a lot of my um, time and energy over the past 10 years, and I got involved in uh, Serious Solidarity New York City, helped found the group Serious Solidarity New York City with uh, my friends Amina Ali and uh, the rest of the crew. 
So it's kind of like one chapter in my life closed and another open. But why am I talking about WBAI? I'm talking about WBAI because uh, my longtime listener is on my program, which was called, <clears throat> for rather esoteric reasons, which I'm not going to get into at the moment, it was called the Moorish Orthodox Radio Crusade. And for the, uh, the, the 20 years that I was producing the Moorish Orthodox Radio Crusade on WBAI, I had a spring tradition which was to uh, to read, every spring I would read one of my favorite essays, some thoughts on The Common Toad by George Orwell, which was his essay about, um, well, about the coming of spring. It was kind of a celebration of the coming of spring, especially, you know, for someone who lives in a big city. He was in London, I'm in New York, and I can still enjoy spring despite being in the big city. But of course, like everything he wrote, it also had a political angle, as it were. And um, it definitely, you know, it predicted the ecology movement. It, 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 this, this essay kind of predicted environmental politics a generation before it really came into existence. I mean, th there was a conservationist movement before that. You know, the Sierra Club existed and all that. But um, the ecology movement which implied, you know, not only conserving natural lands, but also, uh, you know, implied a, I would say, a critique of the industrial system and understanding its, you know, holistic impacts on the local ecosystems and ultimately the global biosphere. Uh, that was kind of taking things to a new level. That was kind of a leap in consciousness, which only really came about in the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, and he was definitely, I mean, what, he wrote, what he wrote in this essay was kind of predictive of that. And certainly the, um, the technology-worshipping tendency, which he critiqued in this essay, uh, is just as bad today as it was when he wrote it way back in 1946, in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War. And despite the emergence of the ecology movement in the intervening years, that technology-worshipping tendency is in some ways even worse today than it was back in 1946. So uh, I think this essay is still extremely relevant, just as relevant today as it was when he wrote it, when it appeared in the London Tribune on April 12th, 1946. So uh, I'm just going to carry on the tradition. Oh, yeah. I want to give a shout out to my old co-host on the Moorish Orthodox Radio Crusade, Anne-Marie Hendrickson, who I understand uh, you know, is carrying on my tradition. Unlike me, she's still on WBAI after the Moorish Orthodox Radio Crusade was canceled because I was too much of a loud mouth, <laughs> too much of a big mouth. Um, they later on, after an interval of a couple of years, the station invited, not me, but my co-host Anne-Marie, they invited her back to do her own show, which has also got a very esoteric name for reasons which I do not understand. She calls it Mansion for a rat. Yeah, that's right. Mansion for a rat. R-A-T. Like the animal. I don't know. It's some kind of literary reference. But um, in any event, I understand that she is now also, every spring, uh, carrying on the tradition and reading over the airways of WBAI, some thoughts on The Common Toad by George Orwell. So uh, shout out to Anne-Marie. Thank you, Anne-Marie, for carrying on the tradition. And I'm going to carry on the tradition here on my much 
smaller audience, my much smaller platform, my podcast, countervortex.org. Uh, you know, Anne Marie and I, I'll just say as a, uh, you know, kind of an aside, uh, you know, she was more on the literary tip and more on the pop culture tip. Um, I was more on like, you know, the hardcore political tip. And perhaps due to the fact that I no longer have her, you know, uh, countervailing tendency to keep my um, political obsessive uh, compulsive <laughs> tendency intact in uh, in check. <clears throat> I've sort of I kind of gone whole hog in that direction with my podcast, the Counter Vortex. Of course, very politically obsessive, very very hard edged. But we're kind of deviating from that a little bit tonight. So um, again, shout out to you, Anne Marie. Glad you're carrying on the tradition, and uh, hear more in the in the in the spirit of. Uh, the the, uh, the the program that I co-hosted with you on the WBAI uh, Morris Orthodox Radio Crusade back in the day. Here's a, a nostalgia trip for all of my listeners from back in the day. Some thoughts on The Common Toad by George Orwell, 1946. Before the swallow, before the daffodil, and not much later than the snowdrop, The Common Toad salutes the coming of spring after his own fashion, which is to emerge from a hole in the ground where he, where he has lain buried since the previous autumn and crawl as quickly as possible toward the nearest suitable patch of water. Something, some kind of shudder in the earth, or perhaps merely a rise of a few degrees in the temperature, has told him that it is time to wake up, though a few toads appear to sleep the clock round and miss out a year from time to time. At any rate, I have more than once dug them up, alive and apparently well, in the middle of summer. At this period, after his long fast, the toad has a very spiritual look, like a strict Anglo-Catholic toward the end of Lent. His movements are languid, but purposeful. His body is shrunken, and by contrast, his eyes look abnormally large. This allows one to notice what one might not at another time, that a toad has about the most beautiful eye of any living creature. It is like gold, or more exactly, it is like the golden-colored semi-precious stone, which one sometimes sees in signet rings, and which I believe is called a chrysoberyl. For a few days after getting into the water, the toad concentrates on building up his strength by eating small insects. Presently, he has swollen to his normal size again, and then he goes through a phase of intense sexiness. All he knows, at least if he is a male toad, is that he wants to get his arms around something, and if you offer him a stick or even your finger, he will cling to it with surprising strength and take a long time to discover that it is not a female toad. Frequently, one comes upon shapeless masses of 10 or 20 toads rolling over and over in the water, one clinging to another without distinction of sex. By degrees, however, they sort themselves out into couples, with the male duly sitting on the female's back. You can now distinguish males from females because the male is smaller, darker, and sits on top with his arms tightly clasped round the female's neck. After a day or two, the spawn is laid in long strings which wind themselves in and out of the reeds and soon become invisible. A few more weeks and the water is alive with masses of tiny tadpoles, which rapidly grow larger, sprout hind legs, 
then four legs, then shed their tails, and finally, about the middle of the summer, the new generation of toads, smaller than one's thumbnail, but perfect in every particular, crawl out of the water to begin the game anew. I mentioned the spawning of toads because it is one of the phenomena of spring which most deeply appeals to me, and because the toad, unlike the skylark and the primrose, has never had much of a boost from the poets. But I am aware that many people do not like reptiles or amphibians, and I am not suggesting that in order to enjoy the spring, you have to take an interest in toads. There are also the crocus, the missile thrush, the cuckoo, the blackthorn, etc. The point is that the pleasures of spring are available to everybody and cost nothing. Even in the most sordid street, the coming of spring will register itself by some sign or other. If it is only a brighter blue between the chimney pots, or the vivid green of an elder sprouting on a blitzed site. Indeed, it is remarkable how nature goes on existing unofficially, as it were, in the very heart of London. I have seen a kestrel flying over the Deptford gas works, and I have heard a first-rate performance by a blackbird in the Euston Road. There must be some hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of birds living inside the four-mile radius, and it is a rather pleasing thought that none of them pays a halfpenny of rent. As for spring, not even the narrow and gloomy streets round the Bank of England are quite able to exclude it. It comes seeping in everywhere like one of those new poison gases which pass through all filters. The spring is commonly referred to as a miracle, and during the past five or six years, this worn-out figure of speech has taken on a new lease of life. After the sort of winters we have had to endure recently, the spring does seem miraculously because it has become gradually harder and harder to believe that it is actually going to happen. <laughs> Every February since 1940, I have found myself thinking that this time winter is going to be permanent. Obviously, he wrote this before global warming. Nobody thinks that anymore. The winters have been getting milder and milder throughout my adult life here in New York City. I interject, getting back to the text. But Persephone, like the toads, always rises from the dead at about the same moment. Suddenly, toward the end of March, the miracle happens, and the decaying slum in which I live is transfigured. Down in the square, the sooty privets have turned a bright green. The leaves are thickening on the chestnut trees. The daffodils are out. The wallflowers are budding. The policeman's tunic looks a positively pleasant shade of blue. <laughs> the fishmonger greets his customers with a smile. And even the sparrows are quite a different color, having felt the balminess of the air and nerved themselves to take a bath, their first since last September. Is it wicked to take a pleasure in spring and other seasonal changes? To put it more precisely, is it politically reprehensible when we are all groaning, or at any rate ought to be groaning, under the shackles of the capitalist system to point out that life is frequently more worth living because of a blackbird song, a yellow elm tree in October, or some other natural phenomenon which does not cost money and does not have what the editors of left-wing newspapers call a class angle.
There is no doubt that many people think so. I know by experience that a favorable reference to nature in one of my articles is liable to bring me abusive letters. And though the key word in these letters is usually sentimental, two ideas seem to be mixed up with them. One is that any pleasure in the actual process of life encourages a sort of political quietism. People, so the thought runs, ought to be discontented, and it is our job to multiply our wants and not simply to increase our enjoyment of the things we have already. The other idea is that this is the age of machines, and that to dislike the machine or even want to limit its domination is backward-looking, reactionary, and slightly ridiculous. This is often backed up by the statement that a love of nature is a foible of urbanized people who have no notion of what nature is really like. Those who really have to deal with the soil, so it is argued, do not love the soil and do not take the faintest interest in birds or flowers, except from a strictly utilitarian point of view. To love the country, one must live in the town, merely taking an occasional weekend ramble at the warmer times of year. This last idea is demonstrably false. Medieval literature, for instance, including the popular ballads, is full of an almost Georgian enthusiasm for nature. And this is a reference to the Georgian era in Britain, when there were a bunch of uh, kings by the name of George in the um, late 18th, early 19th century. So, uh, you know, kind of um, referencing the, uh, you know, so-called romanticization of, uh, of nature, which was in vogue during that period. <clears throat> and the art of agricultural peoples, such as the Chinese and Japanese, and again, this was back in 1946 when the Chinese and Japanese were still agricultural peoples, <laughs> center always round trees, birds, flowers, rivers, mountains. The other idea seems to me to be wrong in a subtler way. Certainly, we ought to be discontented. We ought not simply to find out ways of making the best of a bad job. And yet, if we kill all pleasure in the actual process of life, what sort of future are we preparing for ourselves? If a man cannot enjoy the return of spring, why should he be happy in a labor-saving utopia? What will he do with the leisure that the machine will give him? I have always suspected that if our economic and political problems are ever really solved, life will become simpler instead of more complex, and that the sort of pleasure one gets from finding the first primrose will loom larger than the sort of pleasure one gets from eating an ice to the tune of a Wurlitzer. <laughs> There's another archaic reference. Nobody knows what a Wurlitzer is. When I read this essay on the radio back in the day, I used to update it by saying the tunes on your iPod. But today, even that's outdated. Nobody even uses iPods anymore because now everything is on your phone. So let's just say eating an ice or drinking a bubble tea to the tunes on your phone. <laughs> I think that by retaining one's childhood love of such things as trees, fishes, butterflies, and, to return to my first instance, toads, one makes a peaceful and decent future a little more probable, and that by preaching the doctrine that nothing is to be admired 
except steel and concrete, one makes it a little surer that human beings will have no outlet for their surplus energy except in hatred and leader worship. At any rate, spring is here, even in London N1, or we may say Manhattan 1002, my own zip code, and they can't stop you enjoying it. This is a satisfying reflection. How many a time have I stood watching the toads mating, or a pair of hares having a boxing match in the young corn, and thought of all the important persons who would stop me enjoying this if they could? But luckily, they can't. So long as you are not actually ill, hungry, frightened, or immured in a prison or a holiday camp, by which he means a nursing home, spring is still spring. The atom bombs are piling up in the factories. The police are prowling through the cities. The lies are streaming from the loudspeakers. But the earth is still going round the sun. And neither the dictators nor the bureaucrats, deeply as they disapprove of the process, are able to prevent it. <laughs> Once again, yippee, George Orwell, some thoughts on the common toad. First appeared in the London Tribune, April 12, 1946. And, you know, especially that line, I have always suspected that if our economic and political problems are ever really solved, life will become simpler instead of more complex. I mean, that sort of predicted what would be said, you know, two generations later by um, Murray Bookchin, E.F. Schumacher, and some of the other significant figures of, uh, you know, the, uh, the ecological consciousness, which emerged in the late 60s, early 70s, about which I'll have more to say on future podcasts. Okay. That's enough. This has been uh, Bill Weinberg on the Counter Vortex. Uh, I'll probably be returning to a more um, hard-edged political tip next week or the next time I rant. There isn't any rigorous schedule around here. But meanwhile, you can check us out online at countervortex.org. If you dig what I do, support it on Patreon. Join the Counter Vortex. Join the resistance. And rant on you next time.